This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Zach Adams, joining us from Connecticut, uh, from Fox Farm Brewery. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Oh, thank you for having me, Jamie. Happy to be here. If you've uh, if you've been a reader or a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you may have seen our breakout brewer story on Fox Farm back in 2018, written by Tyler Plord. Also, there's a recipe for Quiet Life Pilsner um, in that issue of the magazine, so go check that out. Um, Fox Farm is a literal farmhouse brewery in a barn behind uh, the home that you all live in, Zach? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've been living here since um, uh, mid-2013. So we're going to dig into that kind of American farmhouse brewing tradition. We're going to dig into uh, Fox Farm's particular focus on uh, lagering, as well as some classic ale styles that they've recently impressed us with. Um, we are going to dig into that kind of brewing tradition and how they've built a character for their beers and uh, how they've done things like, you know, make a brown ale with no adjuncts that's scored over a 4.0 on Untapped, which I think is absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing to me. <laughs> Uh, but it says something for, uh, you know, for the quality of that classic approach that uh, the, the consumers and the people that are drinking your beer um, consider it so highly. We're going to talk about why that is. But first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call G&D Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Sativa brought to you by BSG Hops Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hops forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbring.com and learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So Zach, let's walk back a little bit through your brewing history. Um, certainly the breakout brewer story is there if people want uh, you know, the, the 1500 word background on Fox Farm, but um, walk me through uh, your, you know, what were the key moments that got you into craft beer and then uh, set you on this path to be a brewer? And, uh, and what did you do before Fox Farm? Sure. Um, I was pretty fortunate to have some exposure uh, to good beer with a slight international slant at kind of a younger age. Um, one of my first friends, freshman year of college, still a good friend of mine to this day, uh, was from Munich. And so we'd go on these journeys around Boston with our fake IDs, um, trying to track down <laughs> Augustiner and Francis Connor and just like scooping up whatever beers um, from home that we could find uh, that he wanted to share with us. Um, so between that, a trip to Germany with him, um, 
and a year in college spent in London, I just fell in love with traditional European styles. And as much as that, the, the cultures that support those beers. Um, so that cultural element has proven to be just a really big influence um, in how we approach brewing and, and hospitality here at Fox Farm. Um, I was also lucky enough to have a wonderful girlfriend, now my wife, Laura, who came from an Italian family with this multi-generational tradition and uh, and love affair of, of winemaking, home winemaking. Um, it's not uncommon in the Northeast by any means, but they're a bit deeper into it than most, um, in that they had several acres of grapes planted, actually just down the road from what is now the brewery. Um, so that was a big gravitational pull to this this area and, and an influence as well. Um, they were the ones that gave me my first homebrew kit. I was uh, at graduation from college in 2009. And uh, a very common story from there, I became absolutely obsessed, um, particularly with trying to nail classic styles uh, as best I could. Kind of had this mindset of, you know, who am I to to innovate and branch out and try these, you know, wild experimental brews that were so popular, you know, in 2009, 2010, I wanted to learn how to kind of walk first and, and never really busted out of that really. Um, after a few years, uh, the beer was getting decent enough, um, started having a little luck in competition and such, but I didn't think seriously about starting a brewery at all. Um, I just didn't have the confidence of like contributing anything to the new England beer scene, which, you know, even back 2010, 2011, 2012, it, it was coming into its own in a really impressive way. And sure. it, it would, you know, looking back, the opinion doesn't age well that it was a crowded space, but it certainly felt like, you know, there was a lot going on to be excited about and, and to be able to contribute something uh, to that uh, would require quite a bit, in my opinion. Um, the thinking started to shift um, around the same time that we found this place that we're in now. Um, so it's right down the street from from my in-law's vineyard. Um, and it's this, uh, this old dairy farm. Um, pretty unique by New England dairy farm standards, rather small plot of land, smaller pasture area, big, beautiful barn actually put up in the sixties. Um, most dairy farms around New England, you know, kind of crumbling, uh, right. you know, 1800 builds. So um, very unique, but it had been vacant for 30 plus years. Um, I should provide some reference. We're in Salem, Connecticut, which is on the Eastern half of the state, which is uh, a bit more rural than, than what most people think of when they think of, you know, the crowded state of Connecticut. Um, yeah, Connecticut is very populous down on the waterfront, and uh, and then there's those patches in the northwest and the northeast corners that just are are full on rural. Yeah, yep, and that was a big part of our thinking as uh, as we were trying to crystallize our thoughts around this, and that you know we did have this kind of rural um, feel to the place, so, an authentic you know ruralness, uh, but at the same time striking distance to some densely populated centers. Um, where it wasn't a huge leap of faith to kind of put out there uh, that we'd like to create a place that um, folks could come visit on a you know short 30, 40 minute drive and, and enjoy themselves. It's um, compared to some of our um, contemporaries in, in, in New England, um, that's, that's actually you know, pretty convenient. Sure, sure. And so uh, is Fox Farm the, your first commercial brewing experience then? It is. Yeah, that was a Another huge part of it, getting over <laughs> that that hump, and it's not a, it's not an unusual story by any means. But it, it took a long time, even after, um, you know, this space. We we actually moved here um, prior to anything kind of 
you know, setting up in a concrete way for the brewery um, with the hopes of it happening. But it, it took another four years of kind of spinning our wheels and getting comfortable with the idea of, of you know, making a go at things. Sure. And then spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on renovation equipment and everything and, and making it into a business. Oh, yeah. um, you know, as you as you did decide to take that leap um, and then you know, made that jump from homebrewing into to pro brewing. What were some of the biggest things and the biggest challenges that you'd faced along that route? Uh, there was, we had the grace of like this long run up for me to um, really sink my teeth in as best you could um, through, through literature and other forms of learning. Um, we, went through uh, a zoning process that involved about seven months of just public hearings, just folks kind of standing up, speaking their right. minds, um, tack on another couple months on either end of that, of just, you know, general uh, run-ups in, in the zoning process, the build-out process. It, it was a good two years of me kind of learning the way I had learned as a home brewer by just trying to gobble up any information that I could track down, which fortunately, and um, in today's age, you know, there's a lot of information out there, but once the equipment kind of landed on our doorstep, then that's when, you know, the rubber met the road. But fortunately we were able to get through things with minimal hiccups and, and the first batches coming out were something that we could feel proud about. That's great. And so you, you've never brewed on a commercial system before you've got this, uh, focus on brewing more traditional styles of beer because, that's your the background and experience and the thing that, that gets you excited about it um yeah that had to be a challenge then getting into brand new equipment brewing at that kind of scale and then also trying to hit some very exacting um styles of beer through that talk to me about some of those early brews and some of that that initial process of learning yeah so our first beer through the system was actually gather our, our german style pills and um, your first beer was a pilsner if your first, first commercial first, brew if oh, first okay. commercial yeah. brew was a pilsner yeah oh, hey, you <laughs> really know. went for it there um start with the easy one i mean come on well, we had to get in the tanks if we wanted to come yeah. out and, and really put our flag in the ground and say these are the beers we care about um you know the lager beer had to be the first one because that's going to take the most time um but we've always been a brewery that um we go for things and and do so with a certain level of comfort in, in the understanding of our process. Um, at that time, our process was, was under development, obviously, but um, in, in the deep understanding of our, our ingredients and, and knowing how um, those things are going to interact and hopefully, you know, have, have a reasonable degree of confidence that we're going to, we're going to come close to the mark that we're achieving. And then from there, it's just never ending, never ending iteration fine, fine tuning and tweaking. And, uh, fortunately that first batch of gather and then those that followed, um, set us down a path that we felt really good with. Um, but you know, have never really wavered from, you know, that tweaking and then constant iteration. Let's talk a little bit more about that kind of, um, you know, initial creation focus, um, some of that ingredient, and then that kind of way that, that triangulates into process around your loggers. Before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers 
They need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there is a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, and just enough natural flavor. Breweries returning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million taproom visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In early 2021, Brewery DB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back to the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and to increase your taproom traffic, visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, Zach, as you uh, decide to launch this brewery with a lager focus uh, or significant lager focus, obviously you make IPAs and, uh, you know, farmhouse sales and uh, wine beer hybrids and everything else, too. But with this uh, hefty focus on lagers and knowing that there is such a tradition and an expectation around them, um, talk to me about thinking about designing this German Pilsner, um, how you made some ingredient selections, um, and then how that ended up translating into brewing process. Sure. Um, yeah, we use at 90% Wireman malt in our lager beer, and, and that's uh, mostly a product of just being comfortable uh, with their malts. Sure. And, um, you know, having been to Wireman and, and brewed with their stuff on the, the homebrew scale and now, you know, for several years on the commercial level, um, just knowing exactly what we're getting uh, across their whole line of malts, we feel very, very, very good about. Um, yeast selection was something um, that you know, I had gone into starting Fox Farm with you know this home brewing background. Um, the yeast that we actually use uh, here is not available on the home brew scale. It's Augustiner's Lager Yeast, um, available through through BSI. Um, and that was a bit of a leap of faith to bring that into the into the brewery, um, but also having, you know, a deep love and admiration for for their beers um, gave us a certain level of comfort. And finding the fermentation profile that we wanted um, for that yeast, you know, with a little bit of guidance um, from those that were familiar with it was was good. But we still had to kind of find how it behaves in our brewery. And and. I think a lot of talk, what we talk do, to me more about that. I'm I'm curious. What was that process of finding how it works in your brewery? Sure, uh, we initially just started um, experimenting with you know the, those key variables of uh, knockout temperature, um, when we were going to go into our rest, um, how long we were going to hold our rest, and how fast we were going to crash. Um, so just kind of drilling down, uh, you know, exactly how cold could we go with this thing. Um, and, and, uh, one of the key things really has been identifying when we want to start our rest. There's a, almost a seasonality to it. You know, if the brewery is a little chilly, you know, taking things down to like, you know, below six Play-Doh and still getting up to, um, you know, that, that diacetyl rest temperature we're looking for can be pretty challenging. Um, and then you know, just kind of fine tuning those details over time. We got very comfortable with it now, but trying to kind of taste through every single batch in those, you know, first two years and figure out what we could do better uh, was, was certainly a learning experience. 
and it was really most of it came down to time and, and temperature for you on that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the kind of environmental concern of, of ambient temperature in the brewery affecting how it might uh, adjust yeah. your fermentation profile or the speed uh, that uh, something might be able to rise. Yeah, we, we are a heated space, but a, a drafty old you know dairy barn in New England is uh, it's a little tough to heat. So it's it's a consideration, and you know we're not cooled in the summer months. So we we have all the all the room in the world to get up to you know sixty degrees, but uh, it's just a matter of, of timing it right. And I've spoken with plenty of brewers that that love experimenting with with different lager strains of you know brewery origins, country of origin, and and using that to um, present a certain variety in their in their lineup but we've taken the tact of having a deep understanding of of our yeast and um playing with other variables to kind of call those differences between different lager styles in a meaningful way but still kind of playing within the bounds that we are comfortable with and that we feel is really important uh for like a technically sound lager that fermentation is is number one it seems to be the key of lager brewing that uh, it is as much about um, constant focus and deep knowledge in order to you know find and tweak those uh, minuscule parameters along the way. For you, as you're going through those first two years of, of brewing Pilsner on, and learning the ins and outs of fermentation, um, you know, can you think back to those early days and how you might describe? the sensory change i mean you know over those two years you know what was what would you describe you know now cl clearly you're happy with the beer but you thought it could be a little bit better and you know in small kinds of ways um describe to me for somebody who is trying to also learn better about how to uh, parse out those minute differences for you what would what was what were those small things that you were looking to adjust you know it's on a sensory level, it was it was looking for certain cleanliness um, in the final product. Um, letting the yeast it, it's it's slightly expressive. It can have a, a slight little sulfur tinge to it. Um, keeping that in check um, by not letting things kind of run too hot, too fast, um, and then taking our time, patience. You know, being key. Um, we were just finding. The beers, when we crashed them a little too fast, could get a little kind of clunky and rough around the edges and didn't have this certain, you know, concise, you know, bright, clean characteristic to them. Um, we don't have this this robust sensory program. We have, you know, three of us in production working full time and, and a great retail staff that uh, includes, you know, Emsout, who you know, is uh, sure. pursuing her, her master Cicerone. And she's she's great for, for helping us pick up on on what we might be tasting. Um, but we kind of have to put our, our heads together as few as they may be to kind of try and try and understand what uh, what might need to be tightened up. But in general, patience has been, you know, the biggest virtue and, and, and something we've kind of drawn out. So all of our loggers are on this eight to 10 week schedule. Um, with a very slow crash, um, a pretty cool ferment right around 50 degrees. So we're taking our time. Um, I want to come back and talk to you about mash regimen, but when you mention you know, tasting in a small brewery, I am also curious about that. You know, you mentioned you don't have a tasting panel. It's not like you can go to a you know a room where samples are pushed through a little you know window onto your desk. Uh, you know, and daily you've got folks sampling these kinds of things. For you all, how do you? 
go through that process of evaluation? Um, is it just an informal tasting things off tap or do you have a more uh, kind of um, developed process to where you evaluate together or separately and, uh, and then compare notes? Uh, we, we do it very informally kind of huddled around the bar, whether it's, you know, during, <laughs> during lunch breaks sure, or, sure. or in the evenings, but, um, everyone here has, has thick skin, um, and, and is, you know, able to deliver sharp criticism where needed. And, um, I've always been very open to that, letting, letting folks, um, whether from production or retail, let us know what they're tasting. Um, cause not everyone tastes everything, you know, the, the same exact way we might have you know, a super taster for diastole where, you know, I'm just partially sensitive to it. Um, so it's just something that's built into the culture of the brewery, um, where anyone at any time feels a certain degree of comfort, um, voicing any concerns, um, or, or just how something might be improved. Um, that that's at this point more often than, than anything else is just, Hey, I really liked what we did with this. Um, batch of a new IPA, but, you know, I think we could steer it in this different direction if we play with the top notes on the, on the hopping, as opposed to just those, those deep, you know, dark three notes. Sure. Sure. No. And in, in fact, over the last seven years of, of, uh, judging beer with craft beer and brewing magazine, um, with a myriad of different judges, I can agree with you on that. Like it's amazing the range in palates and how different people taste things differently, what people are sensitive to, what they're not sensitive to. Um, and it's only through that process of, of time and understanding and reflection that you start to even understand your own you know, differences in taste. Like I am hypersensitive to oxidation, but I don't sense diacetyl, you know, to that same kind of degree. And so I know, you know, yeah, even the way that I will end up describing something will be different than, you know, some of our judges. And, uh, you know, and it's fascinating when you get a beer in, you find judges 10 or 12 or 15 points apart on a, on an individual beer. You're like, um, the palate is an amazing thing. Um, but let's, let's back up a little bit and talk, uh, about mash regimen. Obviously if you're brewing lagers that, uh, that mash process can be a, a pretty important piece of the overall equation for you. What does, what does that look like? And this is my, um, my, uh, Joe Stang question for you because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you sing singularly focused on the issue of decoction, um, <laughs> I, I would ask Joe if uh, if we could send him some beer blind and see if he can tell for decoction. <laughs> um, I, I don't have strong feelings about decoction, yeah. and, and that's probably just coming from someone that that's never uh, decocted lagers. Um, you know, feel comfortable with with the malt character we're able to coax out of our pale lagers, despite not having a decoction regiment. Um, but then again, you know, we we really value tradition, even where tradition doesn't necessarily translate into a, a, a really bright in your face um, character in the beer that you could pick out. Um, so those that are doing decoction brewing, we tip our hats to them and, um, you know, we, we, we admire their beers uh, quite often, but uh, we're happy with our single infusion mashing. No, no judgment on that. Um, are there some malt choices that you tend to make in order to add a little more tooth, you know, to some of your pale lagers, um, you know, that might otherwise be added to that? Because when I taste them, I mean, they aren't just hyper sharp, super thin beers. Like there's always this, there's a, 
definitely a toothiness to the the beers that you make and um you know and so i'm just curious how you build that character into them yeah i think um you know a lot of that we have to have to thank our maltster um you know, Wireman does a great job. And we also use Stonepath malt from uh, Massachusetts, uh, who's who's got a special relationship with Eric's uh, in Germany. Um, so between those two, we, we just we, we we love the product that they're able to provide us with. Um, and we find that there's there's character that that translates even with the palest and, and lightest of our lagers. But um, for something kind of traveling down the spectrum a little bit. Uh, Foon is our Franconian Keller beer. That's a beer that's a great example of um, constant iteration, especially over the first three or four batches. Um, we were a little heavy handed trying to drive some of those those small qualities that you might find in a double decocted uh, Keller beer um, and and just had a, a heavy hand on melanoid and malt that we had to rein in uh, along with, <laughs> with Munich. Yeah. Um, not, not that it was totally out of spec for Keller beer. It's a poorly defined style that can take a number of different forms, but, um, our target for a classic bomber, you know, Keller beer, uh, it needed to, to be a little more palatable and, and bringing that in, uh, was part of it. So are there, uh, are you boiling longer in order to, uh, you know, um, kind of, you know, reduce these a little bit, or is this just standard 60 or 90 minute, uh, boils? Uh, 90 minutes across the board on lager. It's just kind of part of our, our process. Yeah. And, um, you know, something that, that maybe as we venture away from pale lager isn't quite as necessary. And uh, we're not even sure if, you know, DMS would pop into into those beers on us if we only boiled for 60 minutes. But 90 minutes is how they've been designed. And, and those yeah. days are usually light enough where extending the boil 30 minutes is, is something we're more than comfortable with. Um, there's a little, you know, flare of when we turn on the jackets as we're, we're loudering to how that might give us a little hint of, of caramelization. If we're, you know, our first jacket in the kettle is, is just the, the base of the kettle. Uh, if we're throwing that on when it's only half covered, maybe we'll get a little, uh, uh melanoid formation. Uh, and same thing as we start to go up the second jacket timing, you know, when we turn that on. Um, but that's, uh, that's a that's a hard variable to really uh to teach and to to fine tune but just something we play with sure sure let's talk a little bit about hops choices um you know especially in pilsner hops are a pretty uh you know key portion of that um for you what is uh what's the ingredient source look like and uh and how do you lean why have you made the decisions you've made around those sure uh well it's easy with our check pilsner all size um and then trying to we're, we're not big enough and we haven't forged the relationships for for selection uh internationally so um trying to find the suppliers that we we really trust for their size and especially over the past you know two to three years it, it's been a little variable with what's coming from from czech um so and then on the german side um you know we probably have six german hops in our in our repertoire, if you will, that we pull from as we're designing recipes and uh, just having a deep understanding of, of what role they're going to play. Um, you know, something like Saphir having that really bright kind of dynamic quality um, is, is something we use sparingly, but um, just to know exactly how that's going to perform in the beer. Um, yeah. 
what are your uh so you've got Saphir. what are your other five i'm just curious i mean this is like uh you know an artist with certain paints in their palette i'm, I'm curious what those are and how you think about how you blend each one of those to achieve something a little bit different sure uh magnum is our, our go-to bittering hop uh, sure. across pretty much all these beers um spot select we we love it's characterful but we tend to use that kind of mid to late boil um on kind of a whirlpool edition we haven't been you know too enthused about what we taste there but we as long as we're getting you know 15 to 30 minutes of isomerization we we really like kind of the smooth bitterness that that's provided uh hollowtail middle fruit um it's definitely in there and uh that pretty much covers our our range yeah are there specific techniques that you used, you know, or is it just down to individual hops selection as, you know, for that quality of smooth bitterness? I mean, I think that is one of those defining factors, especially in, in German style lagers where having a firm bitterness, but one with a very gentle onset, you know, where it rolls in rather than attacking in a kind of, you know, rough or, or ragged type of way, um, you know, certainly the defining factor between, you know, in quality of that kind of, uh, you know, hops character, you know, for you, what are, what are some of the, you know, what, how does that happen for you? Uh, you know, the first war hopping thing is, is something we've definitely employed, but, but haven't really, uh, um, formed a, a really strong opinion on whether or not that that's going to drive a, a smoother bitterness. Um, I think the 90 minute boil with kind of a, a lighter hands on that early charge is, uh, is the tack that we typically design recipes around. Um, and of course, you know, using Magnum is gonna, it's gonna keep the vegetal matter to a minimum with its, its high alpha. Um, so yeah, something high alpha trying to kind of just lay a, a simple base of bitterness, uh, early in the boil and, and, you know, letting those, those noble hops really kind of shine on the later side. Sure. Sure. Are there, uh, any specific lager styles that you found yourself pushing into outside of your standard Czech and German pills or the, or even the, uh, Franconian Keller beer, um, that have helped, uh, you know, kind of push, uh, you as a brewer to, uh, learn and try new things. Yeah. The, the cadence of our kind of, uh, lager program, um, started with the German pills and we, we introduced, um, probably a new lager every six months as we continue to process what's going on and, and get more and more comfortable with things. Um, you know, check pills being kind of the next step. It took us, you know, 18 months or, or more before we introduced our Hellas. Um, at this point, I, I feel pretty comfortable with, with the breadth of our lager offering. Um, but a lot of that's, you know, kind of uh, in flux. What inspires us, you know, after, you know, trip to Bomberg uh, almost two years ago, um, feeling the itch to, to bring Rauk beer to, to Salem and, and see if folks would respond to it was, was something we felt strongly about. So um, really looking forward to, to getting to travel once again and, and uh, feed off that inspiration of, of German and Czech beer again. So Rauk beer, and, and you do have a, a smoked Hellas that you sent to us uh, you know, a couple of months ago for the, the classics issue. Um, 
talk to me about brewing smoked beer and bringing smoke, which, you know, because it's a very polarizing subject for, uh, for American breweries and sure. there are, there are, uh, consumers that love it. And then there are a lot of consumers that, uh, think that they hate it. And I'll yeah. say, think that they hate it because most, when they actually drink it may take a little different approach and realize that has a very common flavor, especially anybody that enjoys barbecue, um, can instantly understand. And, and my God, if you drink scotch, then, you know, you're, you're well past anything in the, in the yeah. smoke beer range in terms of, uh, uh, appreciation for those kinds of flavors. Um, but it's something that people think that they don't like, uh, you know, regardless for yeah. you, um, how, uh, how'd you go about creating a smoked, uh, or, or creating smoked lagers that, uh, um, could actually resonate with drinkers. Yeah, that 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 raises a good point, and kind of something I, I wasn't quite hitting on is is just that progression of our lager program was as much us um, kind of introducing the world of lager beer to to our audience as it was us learning and growing as brewers. Um, so so each opportunity uh, or each beer that we would we would put out there was another opportunity to to tell people why we love these beers, why they matter, why they've, you know, dominated, um, you know, beer the world over for 200 years. Um, and, and you can kind of see a microcosm of that in with those two smoke loggers. We had, uh, the cabin or, or pale smoke tellus, um, out for probably about a year and a half before we introduced the camp. It's, you know, fully smoked rock beer, Bomberg and South rock beer. Um, and I think just kind of, you know, slowly turning those wheels in this ipa driven world and, and we do brew pale ales ipas and double ipas we're, we're proud of those beers um but we we give special love to to classic styles um you know when we have two beers side by side and one comes from the hop world and one comes from um you know a, a lager world then then we're gonna really shine the light bright on, on that lager and what that means to us and what that means to, to beer in general and and folks respond to it. The fact that we've been doing that since day one, um, you know, we've kind of cultivated this audience that, that wants to learn and, and wants to, you know, have these styles and, you know, four years in, um, you know, they're, they're fans of, of those beers. And that's, that's been great to turn people on to, to new beers kind of slowly, but surely. It is kind of that thing that if you're going to do something out of the usual or out of the ordinary, you have to do it really well. And then you have to communicate that you know the same kind of thing to your audience so that they understand it um but then you know you also then have something that uh, other breweries aren't willing to take the same kind of risk on there are those people that when they love something they love it and then yes. they become your fans for life because you are the you're the ones you're the giving it to them yeah and and, and putting them in that place of you know it, after going to Bomberg and seeing how, you know, smoke beer is consumed there, it's like, oh my God, anybody can appreciate this. When you have, right. you know, 20 year old kids, you know, pounding half liters of Schlenker on the street, it's like, wow, there's an audience for this. I, I think, I think folks can respond to it. And it's just painting it in the right late, right light and explaining also, you know, you do have to get past maybe that initial shock that you feel, get, get halfway through your beer before you form a strong opinion about it. And um, that that's been really useful. Having the the medium of of social media and and now you know selling ninety five percent of our beer through our website, um, having a, a a method of communicating before something's just kind of thrust in front of somebody. 
Sure, sure. I want to talk a little bit about building balance, especially in smoked beers on the lighter side. Before we do that, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer this June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page and find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. Um, with something like a, a Hellas, uh, adding a smoked component to that becomes, uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's the chance of failure is really high at that point in terms of upsetting balance. Talk, talk to me a little bit about how you, um, you, know, you think about building that balance uh, in such a light smoked beer. Yeah, so it, it does uh, deviate a little bit from our, our clean, on, you know, non-smoked Hellas, um, in that uh, we do use a, a bit more dextromal, a little, little more carafoam than we would in, in the Hellas. Um, but yeah, you do run that Just to risk. have a touch of little uh, residual sweetness that helps it, offset some of the smoke. Exactly. Some of the try phenolic and, character. Yeah. Try and, and give it a little more body and, and highlight the malt character that, you know, that, that smoked malt is going to want to kind of steer things towards this um, slightly acrid, astringent, um, you know, it's perceived acidity um, kind of value to it. So, yeah, we're, we're playing with our water profile a little bit as well to try and kind of uh, beef up our, our pH throughout the, uh, the hot side in the brew house. And um, going back to having this kind of understanding of our, our lager yeast, we feel like we kind of developed a really uh, firm control over how it attenuates um, just pulling that, you know, common leather, especially, you know, single infusion mashing um, can be pretty easy for us in our brew house to, to hit a really kind of fine tuned target. And uh, we find our yeast responds really well to it. Where we're able to kind of nail attenuation down within, you know, 0.2 degrees Play-Doh and, and, turning that dial as needed to color the difference between different beers. Um, you know, where we might be happy with our Hellas at like 2.3, 2.4 finishing. Uh, we might want the cabin to finish around like two, six, um, just to give the impression of a little more body that, that, uh, smoked malt might be wanting to take away from. Are there specific smoked malts that you find yourself attracted to? Uh, just the classic wireman, Beach smoke malt. Uh, we brought in oak smoke for the first time to to play with in, in another beer, and we'll revisit that and, and maybe uh, kind of explore some different styles that I would use oak smoked oak smoked wheat. Um, but for now, just classic Wyoming beach smoke barley. Sure, sure. Um, let's uh, let's talk about ales. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about lagers here, um, you know, but uh, but ales and, and specifically, you know, kind of classic low ABV, uh, you know, ale styles are another kind of uh, a pillar of what you do. I'd love to talk about uh, wine beer hybrids. Obviously, with your wife's family's background and a vineyard down the road from you, I think uh, you know we can talk about that a little bit after. Uh, but first, I really would love to to kind of you know pick your brain about some of the kind of classic ale styles that you brew and uh, what was the the genesis of that inspiration? Sure. Yeah. It, it took a, a few years to work up the nerve to kind of go down the path of um, uh, English 
styles. Um, you know, that being a, a first love, I, I would brew, you know, clones of London Pride and Fuller's ESB over and over, just trying to nail those beers and to be able to go back and revisit them, you know, five years later and and feel like we had an audience that might respond to those beers, um, which, you know, in this climate, English styles are, are probably one of the hardest beers to uh, to put out there and, and trying to get folks to respond to. So we started with a dark mild. Why do you, um, why do you think that is? I wonder if there's a, a clash because, um, you know, there is expressive um, hop character across a lot of those beers and, and maybe just American palates not being able to process the um, tea-like, grassy, herbal, like when, when we've been programmed for, for fruit and citrus. And um, I, I'm not really sure, but it was big part of my progression as a drinker and i think it was for a lot of people as well so um the hope is that that people will kind of come back around in a way and and start to see what they offer and then, then also you just put them side by side intensity uh, is, is not there there's uh their beers along a similar uh, path um but are much more simple and nuanced it, you know, we even see it amongst brewers themselves that uh, in episodes here, even of the podcast, where we'll talk about cask ales and English style ales, you know, they they don't, uh, you know, they don't get as many downloads. They don't do as well. Like, you know, and so it's not even just consumers. It's all, you know, brewers, you know, by extension. Um, yeah. And I'm just fascinated by that because I I couldn't, I absolutely love sitting down and having a properly made cask ale um, from, you know, and there's a few dozen breweries in the United States that do those really, really well. And, um, you know, but having those, you know, those beers, it, it's wonderful to have that a part of our um, broader world of possibility here in American craft beer. Uh, it's just fascinating to me that, um, you know, that they aren't, they don't resonate as much. So talk to me about how you decided to build a program around that and, um, how you went about making beers that you found were compelling to, uh, to your, uh, audience. Yeah. So unfortunately we haven't been able to share those beers in, in the way we envisioned sharing them. And, um, but a lot of what we do here you know, centers around our, our environment and hospitality. You know, we're in a rural location, uh, everyone's driving to see us. Um, and, and a lot of those folks are driving a good distance. And so offering, offering, uh, sessionable beers and, and, you know, our lineup, um, to a greater degree of, of anything above, you know, 7% has always been a, a big part of what we do. And we thought that that English styles would play a great role in that. You know, loggers, you know, kind of cultivating this environment or playing a role in it. Uh, English English ales and pub culture, um, you know, would translate in a similar way. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't come to bear, but we weren't going to kind of forfeit the plans of, of rolling out a few different beers. Um, we forfeit the plans over this past year just because you can't serve them directly on exactly. draft you yep. know, to, to your taproom audience because you are to go only and, and have been for, yeah. Yeah, and, and featuring those either on a gravity cask or, you know, uh, a beer engine was, was something that we were hopeful on and, you know, obviously couldn't do, but um, had to uh, go into the bag of tricks in a way to, with our dark milds, you know, we thought it was really important to to smooth it out somehow. So actually, you know, nitrogenated that first first batch that went into cans 
and explain to people this is why we did this isn't traditional yeah. but um there is some tradition here and that that uh nitrogenated beer was invented to kind of emulate you know cascale um and also stylistically having not just a gimmick of of nitrogenating a beer but having it play to that style in in uh an important way and you know dark mile 3.8 percent you know we needed to give it some some body and some heft and uh, without you know overdoing the carbonation as well um, how does how does a brewery your size nitrogenate beer you know there's certainly at a larger scale, you know, brewery like Left Hand, you know, that does a you know nitro milk stout, um, has some pretty expensive <laughs> and involved equipment, um, and can get beer to a very cold temperature in order to kind of promote that uh, kind of in- integration of nitrogen into the beer because you know it wants to break out as soon as it can. Yeah. Um, how do you know you all? I'm at that scale certainly are not investing huge huge amounts of money into to building systems like that. Um, and I imagine inline nitrogenators and whatnot are also out of the capital uh, investment question. So for you, how, how do you do that on your smaller scale? Yeah, we were just lucky enough um, where our mobile canning operator uh, has an inline nitro doser and um, had gotten comfortable with it to the point you know, where we were ready to roll out these styles where they were getting good enough at it where they could get the the cascade effects, um, you know, DO levels being in line with, with where they should be and, um, and, and kind of having the confluence of those events. Okay. They're good enough. We're ready for these beers. Let's do it. And, um, so yeah, have to hey, tip, so tip the cap to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is, how does it uh, differ when you prepare a beer to be nitrogenated? Um, you know, or, uh, it, is it going in, uh, you know, through that process entirely flat before? Is there some CO2 in solution before you run it through that kind of inline process? How how does that differ from a normal beer process? Yeah, we're, you know, we're hardly the source on, on this stuff in that we've, you know, it's just <laughs> okay. our little dark mile that we do a couple of times oh, a year. Sorry to put but, you on the spot. Oh, we've actually never talked about that on the podcast. So I'm just, I, you know, yeah. I got to take the opportunity. No, we, we um, uh, even want to carb fairly low um otherwise if it's if it's carved too highly um that liquid nitrogen is just going to bounce off the foam as it's yeah as it's trying to dose in uh prior to the seamer so uh getting our beer conditions just right uh, i think we carb um to the to 1.8 volumes um that's on our our Anton Parr, which reads a little bit lower. So call 1.8 to two volumes, which is rather low, but um, kind of required for the doser to operate at, at what sure. it's intended to, but also suitable for the style. You know, we would never want yeah. a nitro, nitro dose in lager that's, you know, carved up to, you know, two five and, that, and just have it bounce off. So um, yeah, uh, matching the beer and, and beer conditions uh, with what's required for that doser to do its job properly. And I get, is there another temperature concern too, you know, going into that canning uh, line? I mean, certainly with all kind of mobile canning, uh, keeping everything cold and, and dialing yeah. in foam, uh, you know, is an important piece of that. And the longer your, your uh, lines are, the longer your hoses are, uh, you know, the more things warm up along the way. Um, yeah. You know, is there a technical challenge around that too? Slightly. Um you know, the beer conditions would be far from ideal if you were, you were running on a normal 
canning day. Um, so trying to to limit the foam um, such that you know you get somewhat decent DO, but at the same time, the nitro doser can do its job, requires us to get the beer colder. Um, so we, we, if we were normally canning that beer without nitrogen, we would, we would warm it up quite a bit to, to try and, you know, coax some foam out of it. Um, so in this case, it's a little cooler. You know, the biggest downside is I, I will say our, our DO is not in line with our usual target. It is higher than normal. It's, it's acceptable. And we also kind of, kind of swallowed a little bit in that it's, you know, it is an English style dark miles, you know, this might be served at a pub and, um, you know, dispense to get it on cask engine. on day three or day four, it's going to be yeah. oxidized any day, anyway, right? Exactly. So <laughs> a little bit and, and, you know, we're right. keeping it cold and, um, you know, small batch, hopefully our consumers are, are drinking in short order, but, um, it's not so high where we can, you know, we're uncomfortable about it, but, uh, it was a consideration. Okay. A dark mild can stand up to, to something that's a bit higher than our usual, you know, standards. Sorry for putting you on the spot around a style that you don't brew a whole bunch on. That's all right. Like um... we, that's what we do is we, we, we spend much more time on, uh, on, on these styles that might represent a smaller piece of our, or percentage of our output, but that we care a lot about. And, um, you know, the other prong that we have a hit on, so, you know, lagers, um, classic ales, you know, we've brought in a coal strain and, um, have now added, you know, an alt beer to the, to the lineup along with our Kolsch and, um, you know, farmhouse sales has from day one been, been a huge part of, of what we do. And, you know, another kind of piece of the puzzle that we feel like we, we have to offer that, that not necessarily every brewery in our region is, is putting out there. So. Well, let's talk about that then. Um, you know, clearly you are actually in a farm and a f- former dairy farm. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you are, you know, right down the road from your in-laws, uh, uh, you know, uh, vineyard. And so, you know, there's, you're in the midst of an agricultural area with, uh, agricultural tradition. Um, you know, where did you find influence and, um, uh, you know, kind of creative inspiration for the styles of farmhouse sales that you all have decided to make and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, what kind of drove that piece of the puzzle? Yeah. Our, um, I think, uh, mostly revolves around our, our mixed culture. So, um, you know, we're not making clean single strain saisons, kind of the more modern interpretation with, with mixed culture fermented and we, prefer to use the term as a result, farmhouse sales. Um, it revolves around our culture, which developed, um, you know, back from the home brewing days. Um, there's a couple of strains of sack in there. And then things kind of went off the rails a little bit with, with um, some other introductions, uh, some lactic acid producing bacteria made its way into the fold. And at this point, you know, it evolved over a number of years. It's, it's banked with the supplier. We only calling pitches maybe once or twice a year and otherwise um, let it do its thing and have realized minimal drift as a result. So um, everything starts with there. It it's, can drive, um, you know, pretty profound acidity if, if that's what we intend or somehow take our eyes off the ball and, and uh, happens unintentionally, which at this point we, we feel like we have a really, really good grasp on it. Um, it's very sensitive culture to, to hopping rates and, um, that's our biggest lever we pull with uh, with trying to to drive the the fermentation character anyway, and uh, especially fine tuning our, our acid levels in, in farmhouse ale. Um, we use 
pretty much all local malt across those those beers. Um, since that really has kind of become our greatest playground, right? We're, yeah, we have these kind of strict um, traditional parameters we're playing under with some of those styles we we're talking about before. We um, we we definitely scratch our creative itches when it comes to our farmhouse ale program. So. Um, getting a chance to, to use local maltsters, new to us maltsters, um, and, um, getting creative with our ingredients, finally, you know, going out foraging local fruits and we can find them, which can be tough in, uh, Southern New England, a little easier as you kind of draw out the radius, but, um, yeah, that's, that's a program that we, we care deeply about. And then, uh, what you were touching on beer, wine hybrids, you know, something we're excited to explore deeper in the future for now, it's kind of uh, in the realm of a couple beers, one of which in our farmhouse ale program called Anata. It's our annual grape harvest farmhouse ale where we pick the grapes down the road, bring them back to the brewery, uh, process them on site, uh, crush de-stem, and, and then introduce to the beer a little further down the road after we kind of wrap our heads around things, um, kind of uh, see what the harvest brought us as far as, you know, the acidity of the grape, the sugar content of the grape character, the grape, and um, we'll actually freeze those grapes and then then introduce them to the beer later on in the year. Um, very excited with our, our spontaneous program that we've been working on since day one. It was our first piece of equipment to come into the brew. It was our cool ship. Um, finally, finally being productive, uh, hopefully in this coming year. And we, we think wine grapes will be a big part of, of the story we have to tell there. But Interesting. So I want to, we've just, you've just torn through a whole bunch of stuff right there. And now I want to rewind and, and uh, kind of dive into some of it a little more deeply. Um, you know, looking at the farmhouse ales that you all brew, uh, obviously it's driven by your mixed culture. Um, was your, the way that you initially pushed your mixed culture driven by a goal of flavor that you wanted to evoke? Or did it go the other direction where you were trying to build a mixed culture that spoke to something and, uh, you know, ended up uh, building beers around what that culture told you it was going to be? You know, I think there are definitely, you know, those different approaches that brewers can take in terms of wanting to steer it in a direction versus having and trying to have it coax out an expression of, of where you are and balancing between those two things can be an interesting question for you all. How did that fall? Yeah, not to, uh, uh, to, to kind of flip flop on it, but it, I guess a little of each in that, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm not a hundred percent sure what's in this culture. I have a, <laughs> sure, a sure. decent idea. Who, what's in who there. is. <laughs> and, and yeah, one component of it actually was, um, uh, a, a two-part uh, culture blend coming from a commercial supplier that supposedly didn't have any lactic acid-producing component and was clearly lactic and even had like some behavior that made you think, well, maybe there's some PDO in here, but it made a wonderful beer. And so it, it kind of stayed in the mix. And, um, you know, when, when you take that approach of, you know, playing with drags and, you know, these kind of uncertainties, um, you're along for the ride to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, having something in mind, like what we wanted to be able to have the opportunity to really coax classic, you know, expressive Cezanne yeast out of this culture, uh, if the beer needed it. So like our table beer, um, pebble is a good example of that it's, it's rather hoppy. Um, suddenly, 
you know, the acid producing component kind of fades into the background and we're able to let that stand out as a, as what someone might interpret as a nearly clean Cezanne. Uh, the, the, the tartness is, is quite low. Um, so that was a big part of what we wanted to achieve. Um, we always wanted the, the acidity to be clean, um, kind of a lemony funk, um, we didn't want to play in the realm of like real intense barnyard qualities or anything like that. We just wanted, you know, where the beer demanded it to have this kind of clean, you know, lemon quality. Yeah, no. And that's been, we've just finished and, and sent off to the press a, uh, our, our yearly, uh, issue with, uh, Saison farmhouse beers on it. And it has been interesting going through that tasting process with some beers where you are wondering, like, this is, is this is a mixed culture beer. Is it, um, you know, or is this, ju- you know, and, and I love that, uh, the days of us tasting those beers and being able to know immediately, you know, what the process was behind it are starting to go away as folks uh, grow more nuanced in kind of adjusting those parameters where it could be, or maybe this is just an open fermented sack strain that has its own peculiar characteristics also, you know, which, um, you know, can, can create the same kind of thing. Uh, but I love that it's, uh, you know, it is more about the the act of creation and, and brewing something that's interesting rather than um, hitting technical notes for uh, those of us who get wonky about this to pull apart and, uh, you know, um, instantly try to understand. And, and that that kind of, you know, uh, creating a thing that isn't just a sum of, of its technical parts, I think is the most interesting thing about that, um, that kind of Saison approach. So you mentioned using, um, you know, local grains now that there are craft maltsters uh, out there all over the United States, uh, that's more possible, you know, for breweries of your size to work with local, local folks. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, building and, and using uh, alternative grains or locally grown grains and uh, some of the learning process that you've had to go through around finding out how those work in your brew house. Yeah, we've, we've been pretty lucky. Um, it's not a far drive. It's on Connecticut, but, but Valley Malt, um, started by Andrea and, and Christian up in Hadley, Mass. It's the first, um, small maltster, uh, on the Eastern half of the United States since prohibition. And they're about an hour, 15 minutes from here. Um, yeah. and, and they've really been a big part of sparking, you know, this small craft malting movement. And I, I was, you know, knocking on their door as a home brewer, you know, to buy a, buy a bag here and there or joining their, their multi of the month club. Um, and actually since we started, I think it was a year after we got going, uh, Connecticut got our first malt house with, with Thrall family malt, um, started by a multi, multi-generational farming family, uh, up in Windsor, Connecticut. Um, they've been farming since the 1600s continuously and, and really, um, made a name for themselves as um, as tobacco farmers, as as folks you know in the area might be aware. Connecticut broadleaf tobacco um, experienced quite a boom going back, but it's you know in recent decades um, has kind of wavered as as that crop has been shipped uh, out more and more. And and Spencer and his team have pivoted to a certain degree and hedged by by starting to malt the barley that they've always been growing um, as this rotational crop. Um, so he's kind of coming at it from the opposite angle as Andrea, you know, farmer turned maltster. Um, and I, I believe actually Valley Malt's got, got some stuff in the works to start growing their own barley um, and, and to 
see their approaches and know what they each do very well and and where they're where they're growing as as maltsters has been fun to watch but spencer's um been particularly like flexible not only you know being brand new to it but um you know also having the capacity to put stuff in the ground based on input coming from you know connecticut brewers and now beyond you know where he puts you know, spelt in the ground if we say we might brew more with it next year. Um, we haven't brought in Emmer, but that's something that he's growing that we see brewers utilizing across the Northeast, knowing that, you know, he's kind of the Emmer guy. Um, and then pretty much all of our base malt um, across the board, you know, he's gotten very technically sound where we at least have a, a good degree of confidence in our, our efficiency, you know, for those beers. Um, but to your point uh, before, you know, we really do um we embrace the the variability to a certain certain degree um you know farmhouse ales were kind of born out of that variability what is there a, a bumper crop of it this year um that we could we could throw into a beer um or you know what, year to year you're gonna find that variation going back you know over the time that these these beers were made and to have that kind of being woven into to our approach um has been part of it and something we can translate then onto the consumer and, and manage their expectations that, you know, from batch to batch, you might see some variability in this beer. We're going to try and steer it where we want it to go, but that's, that's just part of farmhouse brewing. Um, let's talk a little bit about grape beers. Um, uh, you know, obviously given the family background, uh, you know, you've made a few of these so far and, uh, and, and you mentioned that you freeze the grapes, uh, you know, and then save them for another point in the year um what's the what's what's your logic and uh reasoning behind that so part of it was just um uh, just a logistical matter we weren't ready yeah. to brew that beer um we've always enjoyed freezing freezing fruits um you know, sure. the beer or the grapes are um destemmed and crushed but um you're gonna get a further maceration when you when you freeze and break apart those cell walls. And that was a little part of our thinking and also maybe managing the, the bacterial load or any sort of wild yeast who might be, might be introducing to things that could kind of throw it into weird directions. Um, this year we're, we're thinking about doing things a little bit deep, differently. Um, so the grapes that they grow down the road are, are this kind of hardy um, Northern United States bread variety called St. Croix. Um, the knock on St. Croix being it can be quite acidic um, and, you know, maybe a little sharp. When managed properly, we think it can do really nice things in, in our beer. Um, but the beer, when fresh, can kind of feel a bit like this lively, you know, fruit beer as opposed to, um, you know, those mustier, deep wine qualities. And um, we think that we might be able to manage that a little bit by by getting our fruiting out of the way sooner and, and giving the beer maybe a secondary aging, whether it's in glass or going back into oak, all of our front house sales are coming out of oak um, prior to, to fruiting or, or packaging at that point. Um, so that's that's something as we we dive deeper down this road, we'll, we'll be playing with the timeline of, of when fruit is introduced and, and how it's handled. Um, but for now, that's, that's part of it. And actually we kind of stepped into it a, a pretty knowledgeable uh, supplier from the area who, who sells uh, wine um, supplies and, and great products across the country told us that we were getting this, this tannin extraction from the red grapes by having them in contact on the skins cold 
that is like a softer tannin than you would have in the presence of like an alcoholic fermentation. So it's, it was an unattended benefit, but he, he said he could see it in our beer and, and it's something that's scientifically very real that's going on. Interesting. You were accidentally using a, a winemaking technique that you weren't as familiar with. And, uh, yeah. um, no, that's fantastic. That's, that uh, happens, uh, happens in beer all the time, right? How much <laughs> of, you know, the innovation that's been born out of the, the centuries has been just accidents. So yeah, we'll sure. take the little ones when they come our way. What's, uh, what's the long-term plan for, uh, for Fox farm look like? And, uh, are there any, uh, innovation or next developments or things you're excited about in the short run or, uh, or in the long run? Uh, just, um, day-to-day tweaks and improvements. I mean, that's, that's where we really get our kicks is just, just getting better every day. We don't have any visions beyond this place. We've, uh, for, for better or worse, kind of woven it into our identity that this is, this is where we make beer. And it's, um, it's thus far been limited to, you know, our, our, our little building. Um, but we did put up a new barrel barn. That's been our one big growth ambition and probably the only practical growth ambition, uh, on this land is to put up a purpose built, um, barrel storage space. So it's, it's taken all of our mixed culture stuff and and gotten it out of our main building, uh, and given us the capacity to start investing in Oak. And that's been the real tipping point. So final piece being, you know, the spontaneous, uh, brewing program that we've, we've always, um, wanted to pursue. We, we framed in our cool ship in our upstairs right above our brew house. Um, but we just never had the space to brew more than three batches a year. Um, it was definitely fun when, when, you know, our barrel storage space was so limited that that's all we could do, but we weren't hitting the, the scale necessary to iterate and improve. Um, yeah, we've found just over these past two brewing seasons where we've been able to ramp up to you know, 10 plus batches that that's when we're getting the feedback that we need. And you have this crazy feedback loop, right? Of, you know, one, two years before, you know, right. um, even where that beer is going, let alone what the final product's going to be. Um, when we were stuck doing two or three batches, we just weren't at the economies of scale needed to learn and grow as brewers. Um, so we're finally there and, and that's, that's the final big piece that we're just extremely excited about. Let's, I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, obviously since blending is such a key portion of this and, um, time and temperature and, you know, when in a season something was brewed and the kinds of temperature fluctuations, all of those things impact that kind of beer to a, a serious degree. And, and I think that's interesting. You're saying with only two or three brews in a season, there wasn't, you couldn't learn the parameters and how to adjust for those kinds of things or what you needed to tweak or when you needed to brew or what the kind of temp, you know, all of those pieces along the way that, uh, you know, so what were some of the things that you found didn't work and that you moved away from? And what were some of the things that you found were really positive, um, you know, that impacted some of the, your future decision-making? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We weren't, we weren't putting enough colors on the palette either to, to pull from when eventually blending. We were just, you know, just giving ourselves a very narrow window and, and being our first couple seasons operating like that, we, we weren't going to hit that narrow window very well. Right. Maybe if we were brewing more, we'd have more stock to have blended from and would have had a product out by now. You know, this, you know, we're in our, our fourth year now and um, 
I guess it'll be around our fifth anniversary, maybe when this product makes out. So, um, not five too years bad. of brewing it before you finally release a spontaneous yeah, beer. Yeah, you, you talk to the the old guard who who you know kind of cracked open the doors on spontaneous brewing in the U.S. It's not a bad timeline, but um, we definitely weren't doing ourselves any favors. And um, that's not to say though we weren't learning anything at that scale. We did make some some nice mistakes that we were able to learn from, and kind of you know with that beer going down the drain. Um, you know, still kind of, kind of find something positive in it. And, um, from a technical perspective, the big things being, um, topping was number one. Um, you know, we came into it, um, thinking we could probably get away and there's, there's, you know, the two schools of thought on topping versus not, but, um, we, we feel like we, we took the wrong approach by not topping, especially when we ended up moving those barrels out of our main brewery and into, um, this little spray insulated shed that we had for our original barrel storage <laughs> right. space. That that headspace was just killer. Um, uh, hopping too rates, much acetic acid production, or it didn't go too acetic, um, but things could get really sharp, really yeah. sharp at times. Yeah, and steering towards you know nail polish at times. Um, yes, acetic would definitely kind of show up, and but maybe we were just getting lucky with what we were. We're capturing in the cool ship where it wasn't necessarily a, a acetic uh, or acetobacter, but but still things could get really really sharp with that headspace. Um, and um, hopping rates also, you know, definitely related to that. Um, we we had to bring up our hopping rates and um, you know just a little scared introducing you know whole leaf aged hops in the quantities that you you might try to if you're going to emulate a, a lambic producer and uh having to get comfortable with that and finding some hacks to to maybe get those hops into the hot side we, we sparge really warm we always sparge warm but we took things even up further and, and introduced um some of the whole leaf hops uh at, at vorloff actually right but prior to sparge and we're going to get some isomerization at that temperature and to keep some of the whole leaf matter uh out of our kettle so um credit to to one of our brewers dan for for bringing that into the into the folds and helping us get our, our hopping rates up in a practical way yeah those, um, those are the two big ones i mean we're, yeah. we're certainly playing with other variables but we haven't found a big um um a wild variation in in over the course of our season um you know here in connecticut we can have these just crazy swings um and it can be really hard to to build a brewing schedule uh and and not have you know less than ideal conditions um so sometimes we've had you know a cool shit beer coming off a you know 12 degree evening and other times you know 40 degree evening and we've been really pleasantly surprised by the um pace of fermentation you know both you know how it started attenuation how the beer tastes um even when it's gotten that cold which is has been great and given us the confidence this season to to kind of just give it go ahead i mean coming up next week i think we have one night that's gonna hit like 10 degrees that might scare <laughs> us off but um for now so far so good whether it's you know late fall or early spring we're, we're giving it a go well, it sounds like you've got a lot of, uh, of spontaneous beer stock back there, and I'm curious to, to taste it once it finally makes its way out into the world. But I think it's uh, also a nice thing to, 
brew it and not release it and, and not blend it and release it until you're truly happy with what the quality of that that product really is um and i think that's probably a good place you know to bring this to a close uh gnd chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling sativa is the latest in the bsg hop solution portfolio turns seltzer skeptics into supporters with real fruit from old orchard take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of brewery db and check the abs commercial facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg viking of course if you'd like to support this very podcast go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button and if you're a pro brewer consider our new all access pro subscriptions that combine both of the magazines exclusive online content and more so zach thanks for joining me on the podcast people want to learn more about fox farm where do they find you guys thanks so much for having me jamie um as i mentioned we we sell most of our beer online in uh, in this environment um at foxfarmbeer.com um you can check us out and, and hopefully plan a visit sometime well it's a beautiful location the beers that i've tasted have all um uh, been incredibly impressive and it is a joy to drink your beer i hope one day as this uh covet era passes that i can come out and uh, and actually drink some in your tap room itself and uh and maybe try some of that straight uh, and fresh off of the tap no we can't wait cool well again thanks for joining me on the podcast zach cheers cheers thanks This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.